Hello and welcome to the Farm Reform Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock, Editor-in-Chief at Farm Reform. And I'm joined today by Russell Potterfield, CEO of Endevica Bio. Russell is uh, a pharma CEO, but not from the pharma world originally. Um, come in recently via the world of uh, investing. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about uh, what Endevica is working on in the world of Cachexia. Uh, did I say that right? Yes, Cachexia. Uh, so welcome to the show, Russell. Thank you, Jonah. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So t- tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, just to start and tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourself and um, and how you've uh, gotten into this this role that you find yourself in at Endevica. And maybe tell us a little about it, a little bit about Endevica also. Sure. Um, so I'm Russell Potterfield. I am uh, I'm 48 years old, and that matters because I'm just right at what I perceive to be the peak of my career. Right. I have learned. I have grown. I have faced challenges and solved problems and I'm I'm ready. Um, so and, and that seems important to me and Jermaine at this point. But um, I'm a business guy. So I come from the business background. And importantly, I come from a product design background. So uh, I am used to getting up in the morning and staring into the abyss and realizing that nothing happens until we figure out what to create and how to bring it forward. The biotech world, Jonah, is terrifying, right? Because you just keep throwing money at a project. And, and you're betting against these percentages like, OK, there's a there's a 45 percent chance that this happens and there's a 50 percent chance that this happens. And so as an investor or as a CEO, getting up in the morning and staring into the abyss and being comfortable doing that, I think that's um, that's a key part of what has allowed me to do this for as long as what I have. So I, I came into this background product design. I've got an English undergrad, uh, an MBA after that, did all that uh, back in my back in my youth. Um, and I came to this as an investor, first as chairman of the board, and then sort of the slow drift into co-CEO and then full-time CEO. And I've been full-time CEO about two and a half years now. Really came out as we moved the drug into its IND enabling studies and then running it from there. So tell me a little bit about Endevica um, you know, and, and why it sort of attracted you to, to, to make this shift and, and, uh, and become involved at this level in the company. Sure. So I started in the business as an angel investor. And when you're an angel, you see lots of pitches and you see lots of pitches with numbers that you can't believe. You know, the, the hockey stick that we all talk about in the angel community. Oh, sure. It's three years and then there's a billion dollar exit. Um, none of that ever happens. Right. And the people, the, the angels know it and the people pitching for money know it. And so the angels are trying to read between the lines. This particular deal came to our angel group. And the market numbers are staggering. Cachexia impacts so many health outcomes. And that's clear from the very beginning. So there have been people trialing in Cachexia for a long time because if a company can fix it, they can positively influence so many human lives. So that initially attracted me to it. Um, I've got some chemistry background and studied a lot of chemistry in high school, loved it in college. And so I was attracted to both the science and the market opportunity. Um, so I came on as alongside the angel group. So I said, Hey guys, I'll negotiate with you and on your behalf, but I want my own board seat separate from the angel group. So the angel group now has two out of five board seats, uh, on this biotech that's in phase one. It's, it's really unusual and and delightful. So tell me a little more about, um, what, what you guys are working on. Um, first of all, I I don't think everyone is, is familiar with 
cachexia. Um, and, and, you know, so, so a little bit about that, you know, just the, the baseline on that, which I'm sure you had to sort of educate yourself on when you jumped into this, but then also about the, the candidate you guys are working on. Yeah. So cachexia is, is, it's a syndrome. It's not a single disease. Um, it's a syndrome and I'll go into what it, what causes it in a minute. But if you look at Steve Jobs, if you look at pictures of him from early in the progression of his cancer to late, he lost a tremendous amount of weight. Cachexia is a wasting syndrome that accompanies um, particularly the uh, uh, cancers of the, of the GI tract, but lots of cancers, uh, chronic kidney disease, you've got uh, COPD, heart failure, all these cause cachexia. And over the long term, as your body, as you have cachexia, the syndrome, your body eats its fat tissue, uh, uses all the adipose tissue, and then it begins eating lean mass. And so you start losing muscle mass. Think about the most important muscle masses in your body, your heart, lean muscle mass, your diaphragm, and you breathe. So as the disease progresses, as the syndrome causes more and more lean tissue to waste away, your chance of a comorbidity like arrhythmia, like a heart attack, like pneumonia, all those go up. And so if you could reverse lean muscle mass wasting in late stage cancer patients, the thought is those patients could have more rounds of chemo. They could, they could, the clinicians and oncologists could do a, a more thorough job with higher doses or the intended doses of the chemotherapy regimen and that patients would be able to tolerate them. Yeah, this fits into other other efforts in in oncology uh, because it's really it's a it's a another piece of the mechanism of how cancer attacks the body that maybe other treatments aren't directly addressing. You yeah. can intervene there and improve people's chances no matter how they, what therapy they they are doing. Yeah. So the the general academic research that sort of preceded this invention. Um, uh, all animals, I'll start with that, have melanocortin systems. And the melanocortin systems are highly conserved. So, you know, humans and dogs and rats and mice, they all have about the same receptor sets uh, in the melanocortin system. And so the uh, guy named Dan Marks, our chief medical officer at the Oregon Health Sciences University, he's working in the, in the 90s and the noughts and the aughts, understanding that melanocortin for antagonism um, may be a solution to cachexia. When you're sick, just imagine you have like a, like a, a bacterial infection. You become lethargic, your metabolic rate goes up, and you stop eating. Well, your body has adapted to, if you have a bacteriological infection, you don't want to add nutrition to your body, and you want to conserve energy so your body can fight the infection off. Well, that's fine. It works brilliantly over three days or seven days to fight off a bacteriological infection, but what if that was going on in your body for months at a time and you were tired and you weren't hungry and your metabolic rate increased? Well, cancer creates cytokine storms that then ping what's called the POMC neuron. Um, and that releases precursor uh, hormones, alpha MSH and beta MSH, that agonize melanocortin 4. So we come in on top of melanocortin 4 and we turn that off. And that will give your body a break from the cytokine storm. We also have uh, an antagonistic effect on melanocortin-3, which has strong appetite-stimulating impulse. And so when we give this drug to animals in the lab that have cancer, 
their weight comes right back up to baseline. It's as if the cancerous influence on muscle wasting has disappeared. I say disappeared. I'm not supposed to say stuff like that, but I'm an English major. <laughs> and so I'm prone to hyperbole. A, a doctor would never say that, but it's really profound. And if you can increase mass and potentially decrease the progression of comorbidities, imagine what you could do buying, buying a few months for a cancer patient, buying a year for a cancer patient so that the oncologist could do more of their work. It's really remarkable. Yeah. So, so what you just described, that's what your um, TCMC BO7, this candidate does. Yes. And is there anything like that in the market right now? Um, or is this really novel? No, it's, um, it's completely unique. So we are a, we're a peptide, right? And everybody goes, ooh, yuck, peptide. Um, everybody wants small molecules. Well, small molecules are fantastic because they're orally available and they, I mean, they'll cross cell, uh, cell membranes. Um, we're a cyclized peptide, but we cross the blood-brain barrier. So we're significantly larger than small molecules, and we won't uh, traverse uh, cell membranes, but we get across the blood-brain barrier because that's where melanocortin-4 lives, all those receptors. And then we have our its antagonist or inverse agonistic. There'll be clinicians out there that will appreciate the difference. We're technically an inverse agonist, but we cause a reduction in the agonistic effect on MC4, but we don't have effect outside the rest of the body. And it's so crazy. And you talk to big pharma that's like, we're not interested in peptides. We don't like that approach. But here, it's a big molecule that crosses the blood-brain barrier. Um, Pfizer is trialing a small molecule, but that's an MC4 antagonist. But really, there are only these two companies playing with that technology. Uh, and you know, we're in pretty good company. It's, it's Pfizer and us are the only two that are playing with it. This seems like a situation where a small biopharma maybe is is better positioned than a big one uh, to, to do something that is kind of so different, right? Where where it's useful to be nimble. Like with, with a big pharma, they they have consistent processes they follow a, a, across a large portfolio. So if something, you know, they're, they're all set up to work with small molecules, you know, yeah, and that's been, you know, one of the one of the hard things about coming into bio from the outside uh, in the bio farm is that you don't know what the what the progression of a company can be. And so you start to say, like, no, we're going to be independent. We're going to do all this ourselves. And then you get there and you realize that, well, other people are interested and you just have different processes than they do. And that as soon as you are able to find a good drug candidate and promote that and prove that it's safe and efficacious, gosh, that's really cool. And Big Pharma, the reason they buy so many biotechs, the reason they license so many technologies is that guys like us are willing to do things that are unconventional. We're willing to roll the dice um, as we see good, compelling data. Right. But then when it comes to, you know, when you've done the, the work and you need to get this out there uh, to the people who could benefit. Is that something you'll commercialize on your own or potentially work with a bigger farmer that has the marketing apparatus, the distribution apparatus in play? Or is that TBD? You know, I'm, I'm strongly, uh, I have strong feelings both directions on that. So on the one hand, um, yes, let's take this whole thing forward ourselves. Gosh, it's got a lot of value. We could sure save a lot of lives and I don't want to be pigeonholed in somebody else's big development process. On the other hand, you know, I'm able to stare into the abyss and and continue funding a project based on a little bit of data. 
But when something happens in Belgium in the middle of the night, I don't know how to build the organization that responds to that phone call from a clinician in Belgium with a, in Belgium with a question. And so likely the target will be outlicensed at the end of phase one or at the end of phase two to a company that knows how to commercialize. We don't know how to do that. Um, we may develop that capacity for pipeline drugs down the road, but I think for the first one, we'll probably let that one go on that license. We talked about the fact that cachexia is, um, you know, it, it's a syndrome related to, to other cancers. So this therapy for it will have to be administered in conjunction with other oncological therapies. Is that something that you're going to have to to test on a one-by-one basis as you go through this this uh, trial process? Or how does that work? So one of the things that we're able to do, um, being the funder and the CEO is really remarkable because, you know, I answer to, I mean, I answer to, to my wife. <laughs> and that's, that's uh, I answer to the board, right? So, hey, honey, we're going to try this. And, and hey, science team, we're going to try this. And, and the board is, is very much on board. But so we are testing the drug right now with other with other uh cures uh with other products we don't think of ourselves as supportive care uh like an anti-emetic um or a colony stimulating factor we think of ourselves literally as a brand new therapeutic that will be used in conjunction conjunction with immunotherapies and radiotherapies and chemotherapies and we have to generate the preclinical data there so we can start testing with it but you know we're prudent we're, we're doing all that work today Got it. Um, so, so going back to, to kind of where we started here, um, t- talk to me about what you've kind of, how you've experienced the pharma industry, you know, coming in from the investor side. What are some things you've learned that, that maybe surprised you or, or that you found interesting? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's dizzying. The pharma is just enormous compared to anything else I've ever been in. So in the course of a week, I'm in conversations about the valuation of the business, about intellectual property, about how to move drug from Miami to London for some testing. So the the breadth of project knowledge and, and sort of specific area knowledge here is just dizzying. And I think that I was not prepared for that. I can do the accounting and all the rest, but, you know, we've got a talks call this afternoon and you got to have three people, three separate experts in that call. And I didn't understand it was going to be quite that complicated. Um, it's remarkable yeah. and I'm really enjoying it. But it's big. It's huge, Jonah. It, it, it's complicated stuff. And then on the flip side, is there anything you feel like you've brought in that has kind of improved uh, how things work based on having a, a different experience beforehand? So I've got some intellectual property background, um, and that's super important, of course, in uh, in biotech. So um, I have been able to revamp some of the intellectual property procurement that we're doing, uh, and we're applying for some new stuff now because we said, hey, what about this and what about that? Let's make sure that we have everything buttoned down. So um, I brought that. And then just the ability to, I won't say to execute, but there's a difference in the way that a scientist executes business development and the way a business development person executes a science project. Yeah, say more about that. Yeah, so um, I am willing to go forward on far less data than my than my MD PhD colleagues are. In other words, my my threshold for proceed or don't proceed is a little bit easier. Um, the academicians are used to having to beg for money. 
And so their bar for running experiments is very high. I say, gosh, we don't know, for instance, at this point, um, we have some dosing regimen questions. Well, let's fire off a $40,000 study to go figure out what dosing regimen might be effective. Um, do we have to do it? No. Would it be useful? Eh, perhaps. Let's spend that money. And so as a BD, I'm willing to roll the dice earlier than what the academicians and what the clinicians are. And at the same time, as we get into the, the conversations about talks, the clinicians have so much to add. And, and they're so important to flavor the whole conversation on, on where we go. So it's really, it's great. And we bring each other along. Um, but yeah, I'm willing to roll the dice on less data. I suppose that's, I suppose that's important. That's super interesting because everybody talks about pharma being uh, risk averse, you know, and that being sort of a, a, a real defining characteristic, which makes sense, especially the further along you get in a process and the closer you are to developing something that will be used in patient care. But I can see how in the early stages when you're really, you know, discovering that that willingness to be a little more nimble to try new things, um, you know, with a little less uh, to go on could could really be an asset. Yeah, I should echo. I, I, am, I have a big safety bias, so <laughs> I, should, I should mention that. But when it comes to should we run more trials in this? Should we approach FDA with with the broader label rather than the narrower label? There, I'm willing to push the envelope a little bit more. When it comes to safety, of course, the clinicians, uh, they, they rule the day there. But the, the preclinical stuff and the, yeah, let's try this. Um, let's go ahead and, and take a couple of macaques and, and see if we can get the drug to go orally. Um, I'm much more willing to do that than what the, than what the academicians are. Um, so we're coming up on the, the end of the interview. Anything we haven't talked about yet that you think is, is um, interesting or important or, or anything you want to go back to? So um, there really aren't good drugs anywhere right now for cachexia. So I suppose that's the most exciting thing about what, what I see for the business is that we're approaching a human health condition that negatively impacts so many people and there just aren't good answers for it today. So uh, megase is sometimes prescribed, cannabinoids are prescribed, those don't work. So we really are on the cusp of being first to market with something really profound in a condition that affects millions of just Americans a year uh, could benefit from this drug. So it's, yeah, I, I can't believe how lucky I am to have been the investor that brought it forward and then to be allowed to be the CEO to, to bring it forward. It's, it's incredible. Um, what's your estimate on the timeline for this before we see it in market? Always a loaded question. It's <laughs> yeah, a loaded question. So we're in phase one right now. Uh, we're at our third sad cohort that we're dosing right now. So, so it's early days. Yeah, we're, well, you know, it's early days and we're in a condition that is so prevalent. So, you know, all the early biotech stuff is like, oh, maybe we'll get an exception. Maybe we'll get an emergency use order. Who knows? But I think that the reasonable things are like 2027, 2028 are what the, the reasonable, rational project managers tell us we're going to see in terms of bringing it to market. So, All right. Well, we'll have to check in before that and see how it's going. But it's been great to meet you, Russell. And thanks so much for taking the time to tell us all about it. Jonah, thank you very much. We'll speak soon. 
That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening. Thank you.